What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Hello? This is the Brickflix Fryfest preview series 2019. The Brickflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen and please rate and review us you can just rate us they all have star meters which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all just click on it and you're done and it'd be really helpful trust me the higher the star meter the more reviews we get the more ratings we get the more the britflix.com podcast goes up the charts please 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 come on i'm begging you now everyone listening Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type BritFlix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time in your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and this is the FrightFest 2019 preview series. Welcome to the show, Cameron McGowan. Hello, good to be here. Good to have you on. Now, you're the uh, the writer-director of Red Letter Day, which is playing at FrightFest this year. I'll put a link in the show notes to let people know details and dates and venues and the like. But to entice them to, to click on that link, do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what Red Letter Day is all about? Yeah, sure. It's a dark comedy about what happens in an isolated suburban community when everybody receives the mysterious letter instructing them to kill one of their neighbors before they kill them. So what kind of insights is a uh, Twilight Zone-ish concept uh, take on the us-versus-them mentality that's kind of prevalent in today's society? And I just kind of turn that up to 11. So a lot of blood is spilled. Good, good, good. Um, so before we go into details about creating that movie, um, it's the 20th anniversary of Frightfest. So yeah. um, I'm asking everybody to recall something from their 20th year that stands out for them. Well, in my 20th year, I would have been rejected from film school for a second time uh, and would have spent my days eating a lot of mushrooms and listening to Ween um, in between watching a lot of Asian cult cinema. Uh, I was kind of binging Takashi Miike's films at the time and Teruo Ishii and Kenji Pukasaku. Um, and kind of starting to get into the Shaw Brothers film. So it was really a formative time for me in terms of 
media consumption, really. I was, I, I'd always been writing, but in my 20th year, I was still a full blown slacker, just kind of taking it all in. What was your, uh, what was your entry level for Ween? My entry level for Ween? It yeah. was, Quebec was the first Ween record I heard, but once I heard Quebec, I kind of, just li- that's all I listened to for two to three years was Ween. Uh, they they had a decent back catalog at that time. But yeah, yeah Quebec I, was my. I, I'm I'm of a vintage Cameron. That, oh yes, that, that the bought that, that, well, I, No, before I bought Godween Satan when it come out. Oh shit, <laughs> that's way back, man. I saw them tour the pod. Wow, that must have been crazy. What, yeah. what was the what was the attendance like for that show? There's there's more of us at this podcast. <laughs> yeah i love ween man I'm, they're so great i'm glad they're back together i hope they do a new album yeah no 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 i um i i got to see them because that was on shimmy disc and kramer toured with them with his strapless bass which is oh weird, wow which is the weirdest sight in the world watching a man wrestle with his own instrument <laughs> like, like almost like dancing with it on his thigh because yeah 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 and 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 they played in Newcastle. I watched them. I was at university in Birmingham, uh, in the middle of in the Midlands of England, and um, they played Newcastle night before, and discovered Newcastle brown ale, and Indian curries, and for, were constantly farting on stage, and they thought it was hilarious. <laughs> That's fantastic. They must have been what twenty years old at the time. Yeah, 21? yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like they're, they're they're one of the bands that I've just I've never grown tired of. Never going to, and everybody I've introduced them to has liked them. Um, with your, with your, um, your mushroom memories. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've I, yeah, I, I remember sitting in my one of my student houses, listening to Blackjack off my nut, and me and my friend just laughing each time they kicked in because you know you get those ridiculously long silent pauses. Yeah. We couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> yeah there's just a there's a vibe to them that uh i think appeals to everybody but especially those who are into drugs indeed indeed they're uh they're, they're an amazing band but yes so that's good we started pre pre-recording talking about bob seger and during recording you've thrown in a wing reference cameron i feel like we're on solid ground all right man <laughs> so let's get on to your film red letter day yeah. um Right, as as the person that wrote and directed it, let's start with the writing of it. And um, what for you was the kind of first step on the journey to this becoming a feature film? Where was the idea? So, where did the idea struck you that grew into what became Red Letter Day? Well, I'd been making short films for about ten years at that point, and um, one of them called Liba Love really got some traction. Um, it's like kind of an erotic troll film in a way, um, very inspired by um, the Beast, La Beta. Mm-hmm. And um, so that had played about 30 film festivals and it was a Vimeo staff pick. And so I had some executive producers approach me wanting to fund my first feature film. And they kind of wanted it to be in the same lines as that. And so I'd uh, been writing kind of a monster film uh, for about a year when it dawned on me that I, I shouldn't make a monster film for the budget I had. Um, micro-budget monster films, you kind of have to toy with not showing much of the creature because you don't have enough money to do that prosthetic effect every day. So you kind of have to keep the creature lurking in the shadows. 
Whereas I wanted to make a very unsubtle monster film with a lot of big set pieces. Hmm. And so I, I shelved that script and I was kind of dwelling on what to write next. And I've always been a fan of like uh, human hunting human movies, like uh, Hard Target, Most Dangerous Game, Battle Royale, Judgment Night. Um, I just I just really love when real people are pitted against a fellow real person. And so um, I thought, well, Calgary, Alberta, where I reside, is uh known for its suburban sprawl there's just these suburbs that go on forever and you can you can live in this community where you know there's many people around you and you can never see them you can feel completely alone in an area where there's like you know 10,000 residents and so that idea was always extremely creepy to me so pairing that with a human hunting human movie and everything that was going on in the political climate of 2016 is kind of where Red Letter Day uh, stemmed from. I was just tired of sitting on my phone, watching the world crumble and trying to figure out why. And uh, so I made a satire about what I was kind of seeing happening. What, what, in, what, in a sense, then, what's kind of some in real life? What's been sort of the most ridiculous thing you've sort of come across that, that we in normal society have decided is a perfectly valid view of the world? I, I think it's just how quickly people are to to call another person a piece of shit without really thinking about where they're coming from. Um, I've always kind of lived my life in the gray, kind of in the middle of black and white. And it's so easy for people to kind of get into the this us versus them mentality where the world is black and white. I'm wrong, this person's right, or I'm right, this person's wrong. And politicians and com corporations always use that to their advantage. The fact that you want to be a part of a, a club and so to be part of a club, you need to have an opposing club that has a completely different belief than you. Then you're pitted against each other. And I've always thought that was a harebrained, stupid way to look at the world. But it was really prevalent in 2016 during that Donald Trump election. And then everything was happening in the UK as well. And what's happening in Canada, it's happening all over the world where people are just boiled down to black and white again. Whereas I always believed that everybody kind of lives in the middle. Everybody's a bit right. Everybody's a bit wrong. So I really wanted to play with that idea in this film. And I took a family who thinks that they're, you know, they're, they're kind of a liberal um, right wing, sorry, left, left wing family. Hmm. And they think that they're cool. And they think that they're, they got a, a handle of things. And then once the fuse is kind of lit in this situation, we really realize that everybody has some growing up to do everybody could do with a bit more compassion and uh yeah anyway so yeah. i kind of no, that, that, was, that was great no because that's kind of what it's i think that's a fair reflection because we had i think it was during the last year we had the uh the brilliant sarah silverman pr proving this point by going out to someone who'd been a vile vile troll to her and just saying i think you're hurting so instead right. of just, instead of just going don't be such a piece of shit back at him. She went, I think you're hurting. And then this ended up being a conversation they had, which brought him down from this precipice of this kind of impotent rage he had at the world to kind of a fine and dandy happy place. But it took the interruption of going, what's behind that oblique action? Yeah, and that's, kind of, and that's kind of what the letters signify in this film. It's kind of the, this disruptor that where everybody's kind of on this even playing ground and uh, yeah so i mean there's there's there is political subtext but it's also an over-the-top gore film as well because uh, i like to have fun behind the camera 
So what was in terms of Gore then? Where where were you? You've mentioned the constraints of budget already. So what for you were you were you taking your lead from to make sure you got your best sort of Gore for your book? Well, uh, I'd, I'd been making a lot of horror short films, and so I when while writing the script, I wrote effects that I knew I could pull off inexpensively. Um, from having done them before, but also doing a better version of how I'd done them before. And so gore was always one of the uh, priorities when it came to budgeting and writing. But I also knew what I already had um, photographed and known how to pull off effectively. Mm -hmm. And so working working with the visual effects team, I kind of already knew the angles I was going to be showing and um, how long I could hold them and also leaving in some wiggle room for when practical effects go wrong as they typically do. But when practical effects go quote unquote wrong, um, they kind of go right in a way. Like if too much blood comes out of that tube, uh, it looks beautiful in my opinion. So um, the whole <laughs> film, the whole, the whole film's dialed up to 11 in terms of performance and story and gore and so when things do get a little over the top in the gore department it doesn't feel out of line with the rest of the film so it was always kind of a balancing act with that i'm looking at the uh the, the poster artwork which is akin to some sort of i guess kind of retro hysterical comic design yeah where's, where's that coming from in terms of what you're wanting to say about the film well i'm a huge movie fan and a huge comic book fan and um, I know that when films get a release, once they get picked up by a distributor, you kind of get a floating head um, poster or kind of a more simple boiled down poster. But the beauty of a film festival run is that you kind of get whatever poster you want uh, to, as an independent filmmaker without a distributor board. Now we do have a distributor. We're being distributed by Dredge. Um, but when we created that poster, we didn't have one. So... I just wanted to create a poster that I wanted on my wall for all time. And uh, I love, love EC Comics. And so even back as far back as the 40s and 50s, horror has been satirizing this us versus them mentality. And mm. it was in Twilight Zone. It was in EC Comics. And so I really wanted to create a poster that was just showing um, the universal aspect of this theme that we were approaching in the film and also letting people know that it's going to be a fun picture as well no it's a beautiful design who, who did it for you for you as uh, an american illustrator he's been published by fantagraphics a few times called tim lane you know, yeah he has a comic series called abandoned cars his mm. stuff's awesome he, he likes to draw steve mcqueen quite a bit i think he just finished a um, biography of steve mcqueen in comic book form that he's releasing pretty soon wow but yeah. I, 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 I'd not been, I'd not really been aware of that, that kind of power play that you've, little power play you've got as an indie filmmaker that before distribution, you can do what the fuck you want as far as the poster goes before. Like, I mean, and, and I, 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 I think, I, I think it boils down to, I think there's three designs, sort of basic template designs for a standard poster now, which is kind of man versus scale, man close up, um, and I can't remember the third one is now. I remember somebody gave me like three three sketch designs plus sort of existing posters, and I thought, "Fuck, all posters are the same." Oh yeah, there's definitely a formula right now, and I mean, I understand why. It's kind of what the audiences are expecting. Like when people see the Red Letter Day poster, it's illustrated. So I've I've had some folks think it's going to be an animated movie. I've had some people take the EC Comics throwback too literally and assume it's going to be an anthology film. 
so there's kind of no room for um eccentricities in the poster design these days because people are kind of looking at it quite literally now mm. um and so i mean and movie posters are kind of a good marketing tool uh, a great marketing tool for uh, these production companies so i understand why the formula exists but when you're on the film festival circuit you're kind of appealing to artistic weirdos so you can kind of take more creative liberties. No, 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 no. I, love, I just love that, I, that, that pragmatism to it. I mean, I get, I get why we need standard and conservative designs in a mass market, but yeah, you're right. Uh, you want to, in a way, it's like the, a film festival is the one arena where standing out for the crowd is, isn't a bad thing. Oh, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that's why Dread prioritized watching our film when we premiered at Brussels was because we had this gigantic, beautiful EC comic style poster hanging up in the lobby and if you're a horror fan you kind of know immediately what we're promising with that design and so uh, it did help us stand out and i i mean i already have one framed on my wall and my office uh, so and are, I you, love are, are you going to are you bringing a weird to fright fest is that is that something that is that a bit of, bit of merchandise you're able to uh share yeah i've sent over some lobby cards with that design on there and we're gonna have some enamel pins in the goodie bag attached to those lobby cards so cool yeah. So when you were when you were moving from from script to screen, um, and just thinking of you of your suburban location and stuff, was that was that was that a given your, your location you had, or was that was that a tough find? Yeah, it was a given. Um, it's just locations are so hard to get for horror films because you're throwing blood and viscera all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I rode around suburban homes, we could either use our friends' suburban homes or just rent them through airbnb and so we ended up doing a mixture of both i'd say about 70 percent of the homes were just rented from airbnb and they didn't really know what we were doing inside these homes and the other 30 percent were friends homes have, have airbnb caught on to this yet because I, I keep thinking i keep reading that they, they sort of <laughs> that they may well soon be we're not using this as a film location could be like a yeah I mean, this, this was two years ago so there there hadn't uh there hadn't been any issues back then, but uh, I don't know if I could do it again. But a lot of our blood is soap-based, and so it came out extremely easily. Like, those homes were returned in the condition that we arrived in. Yeah, because I, I, did, I, I did a fake blood bath suicide scene at a friend's bathroom in this beautiful enameled, you know, folded top leg bath. And it was only, obviously, once the water went away that you realised how easily stained the white bath is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it it can get messy, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tell you what, who'd be a fucking killer given how hard fake blood is to get out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've never tried to clean up real blood. I'm a I'm a huge sissy when it comes to real violence. <laughs> You're a huge sissy when it comes to violence, yet you revel in making cinematic violence. How do you square that? Uh, I, Eli Roth was asked that same question when he was touring with Hostel, and he said his father, a psychologist, said, the good dream of what the wicked do. I love that. <laughs> I could have done with that answer years ago. <laughs> well, feel free to use it, man. No, because I remember my parents, I was like reading true crime novels, listening to sort of dark um, classical music like Stravinsky and stuff quite loud. And my dad once came in the room and goes, are you going to come down and kill us? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure you've met a lot of horror fans with uh, attending Fright Fest and through yeah. your podcast. Mm. But I find I find horror fans and heavy metal fans are often the nicest people I, I, I have the pleasure of meeting. Yes, I uh, I recently listened to an interview with Rob Halford of uh, Judas Priest, and if there was ever a kind of argument to adopt a new father, Rob Halford would be a perfect person to adopt. Is the, is, the, is, the, is the view I've come to. But let's get on to your film, because I could talk all kinds of popular culture, go everywhere you want. But, um, oh, good. <laughs> although I must admit, I do I do enjoy the digressions. Um, you cast in the movie, you've got the idea of, 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 of suburbia, and, you know, obviously it's that idea of who, who is, you know, in a bit like the way that sort of um, David Lynch's film, Blue Velvet, you know, it's basically, you know, what's behind the, what's behind the twitching curtains is not necessarily what... Absolutely what looks like the front of house, so to speak. So in terms of casting this movie, how did you how did you manage to sort of ensure you could mix it up and sort of have the almost like the kind of uniformity and then the characters to go, no we're not. Yeah, I mean we held an open casting call. Um so there were about ten days of casting and we didn't have a casting director. So it was myself and my and my fellow producers hmm. just willing to audition absolutely anybody because the film scene in Calgary, Alberta is not huge. Um, we've had some bigger shows shoot here, like the Fargo TV series and the film, the Revenant, but yeah. local performers are often relinquished to kind of prostitute number four or bartender. <laughs> um, and so the people that stay here, they're not extremely experienced as lead actors. So right, okay. um, a lot of amateurs are just as experienced as the, uh, featured performers in leading roles. And so with that mentality in mind, we were willing to see absolutely anybody. And we got lucky with the lead Don Vandershoot in, uh, she was on a television series in the early two thousands. And um, then she had children. So took a seven year hiatus from acting and was just getting back into acting um, when she auditioned for red letter day. So not only did she have some experience from the past, but she also it was a mother and could bring that to the role. And mm. so she really, she really delivered the goods with um, the mama bear mentality that a lot of our mothers do have. But then for her children, the people we ended up casting, each of them only had one short film credit. So it, um, they were completely inexperienced. And so we had about two to three days of rehearsal where in which we read through the lines once, but a lot of the rehearsal process was spent with the family just kind of hanging out. I had the kids play video games together. I had the, the family eat lunch together and just converse and get to know each other and kind of find common ground because they did look like a family visually, but I really wanted to get that rapport going. And so a lot of the rehearsal process was kind of spent just getting to know each other really. And it, it did end up paying off. There's a familiarity between the actors that really comes across on screen. And it was lovely working with them. Why, why did you think that was an important part for it? Could you, could you see off, off, right off that maybe they needed to grow their familiarity or did you just think that was a good idea to help build the cast confidence with each other? It's just how I rehearse. Uh, I'm not really stringent with dialogue. I'll let people say sentences the way it feels naturally for them. And I find if you go through the dialogue too much in the rehearsal process, it becomes quite wooden and predictable mm -hmm. and so i really want them to go through it once maybe twice if they're having a hard time with it but just more of the fact that we're going to be hanging out in close quarters for about 15 days together 
uh, it's just good to get a sense of who the person is so you know how far you can push them or how flexible they are. Now, I know it's not a competition, but um, I'm going to force you to sort of pick a, pick a cho- make a choice. Um, in terms of how you imagined your characters to be when you wrote them on the page and then who the actor brought that, that gave that character life, can you, can you think of any sort of really pleasant surprises <clears throat> in terms of what someone was able to bring to a character that you hadn't imagined when you were writing them? Yeah, great question. So there's a character who's a real vile piece of shit named Lewis in the picture. Okay. And uh, I cast a friend of mine who's a photographer named Mike Tan to play this role. And mainly because I knew Mike would be willing to do anything and he'd be willing to get covered in blood. And I'd seen him act once in a version of A Christmas Carol and he was good, but that was so far removed from the character he was playing here. And in real life, Mike is an outspoken vegan and he's really nice and polite. And in the film, he's a very conservative, protective alpha male type. And I knew that he made fun of those types of characters, so may have some familiarity with them. Right. But I didn't, I didn't know how vile and hateful he would come across on screen because I love him and he's such a teddy bear in real life. But whenever people watch the film, they're just like that Lewis piece of shit. I would, I'd really, <laughs> well, he he meets a fate that kind of <laughs> he deserves, but. Uh, it's just in real life, Mike is such a lovely guy and I knew he could act, but I didn't know he could act this well. Um, so that was one of the greater surprises on set. Yeah, I had a, there was a similar conversation I had with the director of uh, The Perished and there's a, there's a character in there playing an actor called Noel, Noel Clark and she plays the kind of religious zealot Catholic mother who chucks her mm-hmm. own daughter out the house for getting pregnant yeah. in a wedlock and it's this, she gives her this absolute vociferous tirade. And apparently, every Q and A they've done, she's told she's had to tell people at the Q and A that she's really quite a nice mum. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, when you were sitting down with uh, with Rhett Miller, your cinematographer, to, to discuss yep. the kind of tone and the, and the kind of shapes you wanted to throw in terms of what the camera was going to get, um, what what was your conversations like? What were you asking him for? What was he saying was possible? How did you work out? What, what you were going to do in terms of look and feel of um, Red Letter Day. Yeah, so Rhett and I have been best friends for about 15 years. Well, we haven't worked on a project without one another. Wow. And we probably spend, you know, two nights a month just sitting in a basement watching movies with each other um, for fun. And so we're, we're typically always on the same page creatively. And so um, I didn't really come up with a list of movies to reference specifically mm-hmm. other than I told him I wanted all of the violence to happen in broad daylight. I wanted there to be a colorful contrast between um, these really gruesome acts and like a beautiful background. And so we really put a lot of emphasis on ensuring that our locations were brightly lit with some, you know, beautiful contrast so that when the red did spew, um, there was a nice separation uh, and a nice uh, juxtaposition from these horrible acts and this kind of beautiful background. Um, and so, I mean, we did talk about Blue Velvet quite a bit, but I mean, Beetlejuice was thrown around, Heathers was thrown around. Um, just in the 80s, there were all these great dark comedies that took place in the suburbs that 
played with that idea and they kind of just stopped in the early nineties. And I really wanted to make another one of those types of films like the burbs or parents. I think what you're, but I think what you're tapping into what you've, you've observed that's led to this film. It's sort of, I'd like to think we're going to hit a run of this because we've, we, we are beginning to see that the nice, the nice side of society as we believed it was who had the newest cars and the latest, um, iPhones are actually the worst people on earth. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird time, man. But yeah, it does feel like there's going to be a lot of this. I mean, uh, Midsummer did a similar um, approach to its violence, where it's all beautiful orange, yellow type backgrounds, and then it's just faces being crushed and beautiful Swedish vistas. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? How um, how much if you throw in a color that shouldn't be there, and obviously blood in the daytime is not a color that should be there. Uh, and certainly not on a kind of on a patio, on a, in a in a living room, and all those kind of places that you don't associate blood, uh, but you associate kind of nice. Um, it's just gr- it's great, isn't it? How um, this is going to sound really, really, really crass as a comparison, and also quite absurd. Uh, I have a kind of Instagram life which is nothing to do with me whatsoever. I only take pictures of road cones, but it's only as I find <laughs> it's only as I find them, not as I set them up. Right, and I discovered through obviously needing to know more about what I was doing that the Pantone of a cone, the orange that you associate with a road cone, is the diametrically opposite to blue sky, which is why it stands out in any outside vista. Ah, nice, yeah. So thinking about <laughs> that's a really long, that's a really art about first way of sort of that idea of you talking to Rhett about about wanting to use daylight and that contrast of what colours we're used to seeing and then suddenly throwing the garishness of uh, of the blood and gore on top of that. Yeah, yeah, no, Roadkill's a perfect example. Just you know, like a picture a kid riding their bike at five, having the time of their life, and then seeing some beautiful rabbit strewn across the road. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, yeah. yeah it's a, no, perfect, perfect example. The the the, de- <laughs> the dead pigeon never never ceases to repulse us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been reading David Lynch's uh, biography Room to Dream, and he references yeah Roadkill quite a bit in terms of how it shaped his style. Okay, okay, I've read that. I should check it out. Right, that was fantastic. Right, so let's uh, let's tell people then uh, when can they see the film and where. Uh, I believe it's Friday at 1 p.m. in the Discovery Cinema at Fright Fest, and we're going to have a Blu-ray release in November from Dread, who uh, put out lovely special editions of uh, Turbo Kid and Terrifier. Uh, great yeah, company. Very are, happy yes. to be with them. It's, it's great that they've kind of moved they've moved into uh, into distribution and stuff. It's exciting for the genre, I think. Yeah, there's a film playing Fright Fest that was also made in Calgary called Harpoon that's being distributed by Dread, another dark comedy from a friend of mine, Rob Grant. And, uh, yeah, they're doing some great work. So it's a really exciting time to be a horror fan. Well, look, it only gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Yeah, you too. Thanks a whole bunch, man. Um, uh, I hope folks enjoy the film. And if they want to hear more, we've got a, fa- a pretty active Facebook page. But, uh, yeah, tell your friends. The Brickflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed 
of thecomposers.tv. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Palmetto Porch.com.